All right, if, if you look on your seat, there should be a bookmark sized, a thick bookmark. And on the back of it, it has the prayer that we will be reciting each week during this series. And it's, it's com- commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So if you're able to stand, I would ask you to please stand. And so it'll also be on the screen if that's easier for you to read. It says this. In this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. So like Pastor David said, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to be starting this series off with you. And I'm really excited for what God's going to do as we lean into the practice of prayer. It's so important, right? Who here believes prayer is important? Right? Yeah, it's important. And I think everyone in our society, even non-Christians would say prayer is important. Because we know that that there's something about communicating with someone stronger than us that's important. So who here, you don't have to raise your hands for this one, who here wishes they had a better prayer life? A more consistent and more powerful prayer life. When was the last time you enjoyed prayer? Where you were just so... It just felt so amazing to be in God's presence that you just didn't want to leave. When was the last time that you prayed and you were, when you were finished, you wanted to run back to praying again? Most of us, if we're honest, even though we value prayer greatly, struggle with prayer, at least being putting it into practice commonly. Not because we don't believe prayer is important, but because we struggle with doing it more than just accomplishing it. And I think there are many reasons for this. For some of us, we don't pray because we don't have time. When we look at our already busy schedules, prayer seems to be one more thing to get done. Some of us, we don't pray because we're capable. Think about it. We live in the most technologically advanced and and self-capable society, probably in human history. We're self-sufficient and intelligent. Why would we bother God with something we could do on our own? Some of us, we don't pray because we're afraid God God won't do anything. You've tried that before, but he didn't answer the way you expected him to. So we don't see any change, so therefore, why pray? Maybe we don't pray because we're afraid to say the wrong thing. We're afraid that if we say it wrong, that saying something wrong is worse than saying saying nothing. It's just, for some of us, it's, it's difficult to even know how to put the words into practice. But what if, what if God intended prayer not to be something scary or futile, or overwhelming. What if prayer is something to be done with joy and experiencing God's presence? Prayer is communicating with God, and it is so important to our spiritual lives. It helps us grow in our dependence on Christ. And if we're going to grow spiritually as a community, it will, be, it will happen not because we believe prayer is a priority in theology, but because we put it into regular practice. Prayer is, as Jonathan Edwards said, it's as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. Prayer is natural. It's the natural overflow of of believing and trusting in God. The disciples, they saw Jesus, right? They they walked with Jesus for years. And they they see him perform miracles. He heals the blind. 
He casts out demons. He preaches sermons bigger than any megachurch today. And what do you think they would ask him? What, what would they ask for? Would it be for the power to do these things? Maybe a, a leadership seminar on how to do five easy steps to growing your crowd? No, but look in Luke's account. He's, the disciples ask Jesus how to pray. They got, they got the correlation between Jesus' prayer life and his actions. The disciples understood what we think, what I think we're too often to forget. We, we don't see the power of God at work by our effort and earnest, but by our prayers and dependence. It's not by what we do, but by depending on God through prayer. And today, as we begin this series in the Lord's Prayer, we'll be breaking down the first clause, so that first section on your card. But before we do that, what is the Lord's Prayer? Is it something we're supposed to pray every day? Well, maybe. Christians across denominations and cultures and languages for the last 2,000 years have been praying this exact prayer. But one thing is you believe about praying it literally. We should definitely follow the example that the prayer is given, and we should do that regularly. Maybe not word for word daily, but surely thought for thought weekly. Jesus gave us this clear example of how to pray. If Jesus taught us to do anything else, we would immediately want to do it. When Jesus says, do this, we do it. But when it comes to prayer, we, Jesus says, pray like this, and we're like, okay, maybe. But it isn't a formula or a ritual for getting what we want. It's a format for becoming more like Christ in our prayers. It's not going to give us what we want necessarily, but it will give us more of Jesus. And this prayer, like all of Jesus' ministry, is very Jewish. Um, only he directs it towards the new covenant. So in the first century, there's a group of prayers called the Kaddish. I think I said that wrong. Forgive me. Um, but it's called the Kaddish. And in the Kaddish, there's almost an exact word-for-word -word replica of the beginning of this prayer. So Jesus' prayer has a lot of similarities with the rest of the Jewish, excuse me, Jewish culture. And Jesus is a good rabbi. And so he shows us how, how, how the Jews implemented their faith. But thankfully, he directed it towards the whole world, not just Jews. Another important facet of this prayer is that it follows exactly the, the outline of the great commandment. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mandy, when he talked about a people of presence, he said there are multiple um, parts of the great commandment, but there are two main emphases, which is to love God and love others. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, it does both those things, love God and love others. The first three requests, hallowed be your name, your kingdom will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second three have to do with loving others. But I think, like Tim Mackey says, we tend to read it personally. We read it as, give me my daily bread, forgive me my debts, lead me not into temptation. But that isn't what it says. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Do not lead us into temptation, forgive us our debts. It's communal in nature. It's not just asking for yourself the things you want and need, that's important, but it's also asking for others what you would want for yourself. Jerry Bacon is an older saint in our church, and he, and he does this really well. I was talking to him about prayer because I'm young, he's older, I'm dumb, he's smart, and so I know where wisdom is. And so I was asking him about prayer, and he says, you know, Jeff, whenever you ask, whenever I need something for myself, I ask for the same thing for others. And I don't know if he did it intentionally, but he definitely was following exactly what Jesus is getting at in this prayer, is that we should pray for others what we pray for ourselves. The goal of the Lord's Prayer which is that we would shape our community's prayer with the language of Jesus. And in light of all this context, now we're going to begin. I promise I'm going to go faster. 
Um, the title of this message today is called The Posture of Prayer. And you may be thinking physically, but I'm, I'm speaking more about your heart's posture. It's important to talk about our physical posture in prayer. That's another talk for another time. But today, I really want us to lean into and think about the attitude of our hearts in prayer. Because if we're going to grow in the practice of prayer, we must start with our attitude in prayer. And the correct posture comes when we understand whom we are talking to and why we talk to him. When we remember who we are talking to, it shapes why we pray and how we pray. When we remember who we are praying to, it shapes why we pray and how we pray. Sometimes when I'm hanging out with Brooke, it'll be a Friday night, she just got off work, we're eating some food, hopefully it's good for us, most of the time it's not. It's my fault, not hers. I'm, she's, she's working, anyways, not the point of the story. Um, and we'll be watching some Netflix, just relaxing, and I won't be thinking about who I'm sitting next to. Maybe you can relate. The habits you've created are healthy and create healthy comfortability. But sometimes healthy comfortability creates an unhealthy level of commonality. When we become comfortable, that's good. When we make gifts common, that's bad. We've, we've spent so much time together over the last four and a half years being married, and they've been wonderful. But I sometimes just take, for, take it for granted. I've just spend so much time with her that I don't think about what's going on. I remember where I was, 2017, almost married, studying for a theology class where I had 12 points of the Trinity I had to memorize to repeat the next day. It's 2 a.m. because, you know, that's when I studied the last night. And I remember thinking, man, it'd be so much better if Brooke was here because she could help me memorize it. But also just because I wanted to be around her. I enjoy her presence, and it's not that I don't anymore. Sometimes I just forget what's going on. And the commonness, the commonness of being able to speak to the God who created everything, we make that common. It, it, we we're comfortable in our conversation with God, and that's good, but sometimes we make it common, which is not good. And this is the danger we, we all should avoid. But this danger is, is easier to avoid when we remember who we're talking to. And that's why posture matters so much. We are to enter the throne room boldly. Forget that we are entering a throne room. And so Jesus prayer with our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. And this revolutionized the way that people saw God. Because in the first century, the Israelites believed that God was the God of the Jews. He was the father of the nation of Israel. But no one dared to call God their personal father. They wouldn't dare. God was, God was over here, and then the people, they, they, were, they were the children of God, yes, but not individually. But Jesus says he's our father. He's my father. He's my dad. He's your dad in Christ. And the only way we can even dare to think about ourselves like that is because of what theologians have called union with Christ. And essentially what it means is that when we follow Jesus and we're saved by him, we become united to him, and we enjoy all the inheritance that he has, that we become co-heirs with Christ, that he has given us everything that belongs to his inheritance. And we begin to enjoy all these benefits, and one of the first benefits is that we are the children of God. What an amazing reality. And here's Jesus teaching his disciples to pray to God as their dad. And to this day, I think many of us struggle with what that looks like for us to believe that God is our dad. We may believe it because Jesus said it, but we wrestle with the implications. 
Because maybe our earthly dad was emotionally unavailable. Maybe they were recovering from their own childhood. While for some of us, our dad wasn't even there. He didn't even show up. Others still had abusive dads. Some of us had good dads, but they let us get away with too much. Some of us had really good dads who tried really hard, but they weren't perfect. And the reality is, is whether we had a good dad or a bad dad, all of us in Christ have a perfectly heavenly father, one who will never let you down, one who will never leave. He'll never not show up. He'll never stop loving you. And so Jesus uses this imagery of God being our father for two main reasons. One is that a good dad, the general rule, a good dad cares about his children and wants what's best for them. And that's the goal that most dads aim for, however imperfectly. But two, dads are responsible for the well-being of their kids. And that means kids can count on their dads. So there's two lenses that, he, that Jesus is pointing us toward for what it means for God to be a father. Your father knows everything about you and he doesn't judge you whatsoever. He loves you and he wants what's best for you. And he cares about you and he'll listen to anything you have to say. You don't have to have it right. You don't have to say it right. He still loves you. And so if we begin to see God the way that Jesus sees God, if we can begin to see God as our Father, then prayer will become a gift, not just a burden. It'll be a blessing, not a burden. And being the perfect good dad, he wants us to trust him and talk to him about what's going on. So Jesus is encouraging us right from the start to reframe the way that we see God, to reframe the image of God we have, to move us away from the angry Zeus-like God that we may think exists and instead move us into the, who, the God who really exists. But Jesus also wants to move, us to move away from God being like this grandpa in the sky. Right, at, right after pointing out that God is our Father, Jesus says, who is in heaven? And this isn't a reference to his location necessarily. That's true, but the point that he's getting at here is heaven as God's rule and reign through the universe. And so the, the idea is that Jesus is saying that God is our Father, yes, but he's also the king over everything. That he rules and reigns, that he's supreme in all things. And even though we don't see his rule and reign in everything right now, it's very much present and it's very much coming. And a good picture of this is found in Revelation chapter 4. It should be on the screen. It says this. Then as I looked... I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like a crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. Can you imagine seeing that? The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were, cover, covered, all, were covered all over with eyes. Again, can you imagine that? Inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on crying, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. 
Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. This, this is the picture of God. This is not some distant day in the future where God is ruling and evil is over. No, God is ruling right now. The very God who sustains all things and reigns supreme over all the universe. This king who speaks and as he wills it is done. The significance of connecting this image of God as king as well as seeing God as our father is huge if we're able to see it. These truths are so important that N.T. Wright put it this way. If you can hold these two things together, you're already on the way to understanding what Christianity is all about. And Jesus wants all of our prayers to acknowledge this tension, this reality that God is our Father. He is nearer to us than even our own breath. And yet he is also king of the universe, ruler of all things. So this means we should approach him boldly, but correctly. Now, here's what I mean. What I'm saying is be careful with the language you use about God. God is not our homeboy or the man upstairs, the big G. He is the ruler over all things. Yet he is not too busy or too important to hear the cries of his kids. God is not the God of deism off and aloof, unaware of all the world and its happenings. He cares deeply for you. And if we don't get this right, then it makes sense why our prayer is a challenge. This is why correct knowledge of God or theology is so important. What we believe about God determines what we do with him. If we overemphasize one over the other, we end up with either a tyrant or a pushover. But when we see God as he is, as Jesus shows us what he is like, it changes not just who we pray to, but why and how. Our posture in, pra- in, sorry, our posture in prayer begins with seeing God as who he is, but it also determines why we pray. And there's three reasons that I want us to quickly go through for why we pray. We pray for the glory of God. We pray because God is, sorry, because our king is powerful. And we pray because our father loves us, starting with the glory of God. My first summer here, we would go every year to Rock and Water. And Rock and Water camp was a lot of fun. It was extremely exciting to go rafting when you don't know how to swim. So exciting. But it really, no, it was really a great experience. And I learned very quickly they had a, they had a really easy way of getting people to try, try new things. If you were a little scared or timid, they had an encouragement chant that they would tell to you, something that they would get you to try and step out of your comfort zone. It was this simple chant. Do it and you're cool. Do it and you're cool. And every teenager ever knows that mantra. <laughs> and what we lovingly call that is peer pressure. But it was the positive kind of peer pressure. It wasn't, we were, I promise nothing dangerous happened. I promise while I was around, I can't speak for Dean, but when I was there, it was safe, I promise. But this facetious kind of peer pressure, it was trying to get the student to see what they could do, or at least what they should try and give a try. And when we appeal to God's name, it's not peer pressure. I think that's what we think about when we think like, hallowed be your name, or or when the psalmist says, for the honor of your name. We, we tend to think of, of bringing up God's name as if it's like trying to pressure God into doing something. But really, it's appealing to God's character. What, what Jesus is saying is, hallowed be your name. He is saying that we are to request God 
to show the holiness of his name. It's not that God's name needs to grow in holiness. There's no other name like it. There's no other being in the universe as holy as God. What he's getting at is that God, he's requesting God to show his holiness, to show the holiness of his name through his people. In the Old Testament, or before the Jesus part of our Bibles, there are a couple times where it brings it up. In, in Psalm 25, it says, For the honor of your name, O Lord, forgive my many sins. In Ezekiel 36, when, when God's people are in exile, they've been living outside of Jerusalem for a period of time. As they are in exile, God says, I'm going to bring you out of exile, but not because you've earned it. In fact, it was the sin of the people that had led them into exile. No, God, God was going to bring them back to himself and give them a new heart or bring Jesus for the sake of his own name. But God's not being arrogant. It is actually God's character and kindness toward his people that drive him to protect his name. We think of it from this point of view. Oftentimes, brands will fire people to keep themselves from the mobs. Sometimes makes sense, sometimes not. But God protects his name so the hurting and broken know that he is for them and not those who misuse it. God is for the hurting and the broken and not those who misuse his name. Therefore, praying for his name to be hollowed or holy is an appeal for more people to see the God who is, that he is forgiving and sovereign, kind and just, so that when we see God correctly as he is, we desire more of him, and we desire for more people to know him. The holiness of God, or his us in comparison with all the other gods that people worship, and that's his, his difference is, is unspeakable, almost incomparable. He's so much greater. Just think a little bit about the gods so-called gods that people have worshipped in, in human history. In the ancient Near East, or where Judaism started, it was filled with gods who demanded human sacrifice and appeasement, or they would destroy the people forever. But our God says human beings are, invaluable, are, are valuable and made in his image. In Egypt, the pharaohs were considered God, and they used all their power to, to use other human beings as slaves and just use them for their pleasure and prestige. But our God robbed Egypt and rescued his people just because he loved them. The Greek gods were no better than humans. They just used and abused their power to trick and destroy them. But our God uses his power to save us, and not one of his promises has failed. The modern gods of progress and pleasure always leave us wanting because they can never give what they promise. We never arrive at perfection because progress is always ahead of us and pleasure is always fleeting. But our God actually satisfies our deepest longings because we were made and created to enjoy him. And he continues to promise a future with him that's better than anything we can accomplish with our best progress. The holiness of God or the fact that he stands above all the other so-called gods is amazing. And there's none like him. In ancient myth or modern minds, no one stands next to him. And the reality of this is worthy of praise. Our God is not just some better version of us in our culture. No, God is better than anything we could have imagined or come up with. And one of the key things in understanding his name to be holy or hallowed is to desire that the world would know this God, the one revealed in Jesus. Not just so that God can get more followers, but that more people can experience the power and freedom of Jesus. This is why we pray for his name to be holy, that more might know and experience him like we have. And this is the truth of what sets up the next part of why we pray. We pray for the glory of God, but we also pray because God is king. Have you ever asked the wrong person for help? 
Like, you've, like you, you, you thought they could help you, but they can't. This happens to me all the time. Because I'm young, people assume I know technology. I do not know technology. And I, I am the biggest proponent or the biggest proponent of this false narrative that I think I know what I'm doing. And people will ask me, Jeff, how, how do you do this? How do you do this? I'm like, yeah, I got this. And I'll Google on my phone and then misdo it. And I, someone has to come back and fix what I misdid. Um, it's, it's, it's frustrating, right? When you talk to the wrong person, when you talk to God about your problems, you're never talking to someone who can't do something. God is not bad tech support like Jeff. We must remember that who we are talking to is capable of doing all things. Prayer is not throwing up a Hail Mary pass, hoping that it might work. No, prayer is entrusting our requests to the one who can do anything. W.S. Bowden, who was a pastor 200 years ago, he said this, prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence. Prayer is weakness leaning on omnipotence, on, on all power. God is capable of doing the impossible, and he's done it before, and he'll do it again. And this is because he's the supreme ruler of the universe. This means that we know that anything we ask in accordance with his will can be done. That means there's nothing too big you can request from God. If we believe that God can do impossible things, but we never ask him to do impossible things, do we believe it? If we only ask for small things, do we really only believe God can do small things? Or do we believe God actually can do the impossible? But maybe we don't ask because we don't believe he will, which leads us into our next part. We pray for the glory of God. We pray because God is king, but we also pray because God loves us. Our Father cares about us. In one of the most interesting constructions in the New Testament of Greek, in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says this, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Or more literally, Cast all your anxieties on God, for he is anxious for you. And this phrasing may make us uncomfortable, because obviously God doesn't worry. He can do anything. But in a sense, it makes sense, right? God's care for us makes perfect sense of him being our father. God cares more about us than we are anxious about our cares. The king of the universe, the only God who exists, he cares more about you and your anxieties than you focus on your worries. God cares about you. To put it in another way, if you're anxious about it, God cares about it, he wants to hear about it. This is what it means for us to be his kids, that he actually is moved by our hurts and problems. He isn't a stoic God looking down like a statue. God cares. And this is the ultimate reason we can trust and pray, because if God but doesn't care, it doesn't matter what we say. But if God can do anything, and he cares, that means everything we have is worthy to be prayed about. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered, at least not the way we want them to, but that, that, that's okay because God's a good dad. Tim Keller puts it like this. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what he knows. One of the most terrifying ideas to think about right now for me is being a dad. And I'm going to be a dad, or I am a dad, I'm waiting for the baby to show up. Take your time. Um, <laughs> sorry. But I already love this child like I've known them my whole life. I, I want what's best for them. I, I want them to have a great childhood and to enjoy life. I want them to grow up knowing I'm always going to be there for them. And I want their good over my preferences and comfort. I want my child to be safe and healthy. But knowing that they're my child, they're going to make some dumb decisions and learn the hard way. 
I care about them already. But if I, being a limited, imperfect human being, care about my baby this way, how much more does God care about you? Or does God desire the good of his kids? If God loves us with such great love that he would send his son Jesus to reconcile us to himself, doesn't that say he cares about what's on your heart? One of the goals of this emphasis on the practices of prayer is that we would be invited into greater depth of knowing God and experiencing him. The goal isn't that we would be guilted into praying more. I don't want any of you to walk away and feel guilty. That's not the goal at all. I want you to believe that God loves you and he's for you and he can do anything and he will if you ask him. That's the God we serve. That's who God is for us. In this age of distraction and instant gratification, prayer works against everything we understand because it calls us to focus and wait and be. Just be with your father. And knowing that praying about something actually changes things. But most importantly, it changes us. It allows us to remember that we are not in control, but we are dearly loved by the one who does. He controls all things and he loves you. This is the God that we worship. This is the God of the Bible. If it sounds too good to be true, it's because you've been misled to believe in lesser gods. Because the real God loves you. And he's not done with you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you're going. He's not done with you. He loves you. He's for you. Any other God is an idol that needs to be smashed and thrown away. The real God, the one who exists, is your dad. And he's calling you home. And he says, it's okay. It's not too late. Just come home. I want to invite the band up to close us in a song of reflection. And in a moment, we'll come forward to receive communion. To recap, we begin growing in the practice of prayer by remembering that we're talking to our dad, the one who's more passionate about you than anyone else, the one who loves you unendingly, the king over all things. And we pray so that the world will know him and what he's like. We pray because God can actually do something. He can actually change the things we can't. And we pray because God loves us and is for us as our perfectly heaven, perfect heavenly father. That's the God we serve. That's the God we pray to. It's not some God far off who doesn't care about you or is too good for your problems. He loves you. But how do we practice this? It's good to talk about it, Jeff, but how do we do it? Well, first, on your chairs, you should each find a prayer card. And so on this prayer card, um, it just is some quick prayers that you can put into practice this week. We timed it out. Each prayer is about 30 seconds. So 30 seconds times three, 90 seconds a day. It may not seem like much, but it's good to just get in the habit of thinking about who you're praying to. And if that's too short, we've got a longer prayer reflection guide in the courtyard Pastor Manny put, put together for us. And it has some reflections and some scriptures to read. So I just encourage you, just take that and just apply that this week. Just five days this week, Monday through Friday, just try it out. Begin to pray. Secondly, we remember, when we remember who we're talking to, it changes what we pray, right? In John 14, 14, Jesus says, yes, ask Ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. Knowing that we're talking to the king of the universe means that we're not trying to strong arm him into doing what we want. That's not what we're doing. But we are asking him to conform our will to his will, to show us what's best for us as our good dad will. Third is that I would encourage you, before you pray this week, just take a couple of seconds to remember who you're talking to.
If it's helpful, just stick a bookmark in Revelation chapter 4 or highlight it in your Bible on your phone, whatever it takes. And just remember who you're talking to. This is the God who loves you, the one that's powerful and amazing. And finally, and most importantly probably, is just start where you're at. God is not impressed by our verbal gymnastics, but he desires our humble attempts. Your prayers don't have to be perfect King James English for God to hear you. A child's fumbling words are still music to their father's ears. All of this today, this whole conversation is built on the fact that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died in our place and he rose from the grave. All this whole conversation would be pointless if Jesus hadn't made us reconciled to God. There would be no access to God as Father without Jesus the Son coming near. So today, as we, in a second, come forward to the table called communion, we recognize that our prayers are taken to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. And through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, we are able to come to the throne of grace boldly. So today, as we come forward, let us remember that the infinite love of the infinitely powerful God, the God who made all things, who suffered on a cross and died for us so that we might have eternal life in him. Paul puts it this way, for as often as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we rehearse the Lord's death until he returns. So if this morning, if you have trusted in Jesus as Savior, I encourage you to come forward, but come forward remembering the God who loves you. Let's pray.